Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 4. Listen now to God's word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who are new to Resurrection, maybe finding us online through one of these streaming services, uh, my name is Matt Anderson. I'm the associate pastor here in this church community, and I'm glad you're worshiping with us this morning, whoever and wherever you are. Uh, now, I, I don't think that I'm one who's prone to hyperbole, uh, but even if you think that I am, I, I don't think what I'm about to say is an exaggeration. Now, as I've sat with what I should say this morning, I've come to realize that this is perhaps the most significant sermon I've ever preached, certainly the most significant at this church, because as we continue to discuss the work of racial justice, the stakes are simply too high. They always have been. Something we'll come back to in a moment, but this is not a time for me to get esoteric. This is not a time to keep our theology at arm's length from reality. This is not a time for some theoretical middle ground. This is not a time for me to preach about justice in some general sense. And this is not a time to preserve a nice, tidy religion that refuses to get messy. Everything I'm going to share will be offered with a spirit of grace and love and humility. I hope you hear it and receive it that way. I've prayed like never before heading into this sermon that the Spirit would work in me and work through this in ways that go far beyond the words I speak. 
Now, I, I will be direct and jump into some of the nitty-gritty and share with you not only my heart, but my conviction on how I believe God's calling us to respond. In fact, I share what I have to say today with all of the conviction that I can muster. Well, my trust in Scripture and my faith in the God revealed in Jesus form the foundation of everything that I will say today. I, I don't believe we need more scriptural support this morning for why this work is important or why we must engage in the work of justice. We already know it. It's everywhere in scripture. Instead, what I believe you need from me today, what you deserve from me today is, is clarity, conviction, direction. I'll, I'll do my broken best to offer those to you this morning. But first, I just have to give a brief disclaimer, you know, the kind of disclaimer that says the views expressed in this sermon are those of the preacher and not necessarily those of Resurrection Church or Dave Berge. Uh, so if you have any questions or comments or would like to engage in further dialogue around anything I say this morning, please come to me. Uh, you can email me at matt at cityoflakescove.org or, or those of you who are members of the Res Church community, you have my cell phone number in our church directory. Please reach out via call or text. I believe dialogue is vitally important here and I don't want to be insulated from that. I also want to disclaim that, that much of what I'll say today pertains more to those of us who are white. And so to my, my brothers and sisters of color here at Res, I'm, I'm deeply grateful for you. And I appreciate your grace and patience this morning. I fully believe that God has planned for all of us to hear today. It's just that as a predominantly white congregation, there are specific things we need to name and confront before we can move in forward in this work together as a church. I'm going to try to not get too long-winded, but, but I might go a little longer than I normally do. So just fair warning there. So with all of that preface out of the way, let's dig in. Uh, now, many of you might not be aware of this, but I come from a Lutheran upbringing. My dad was a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor, and while the Lutheran tent is really no longer my home base within the church, I will never forget Martin Luther's famous words, words that some scholars debate whether or not he said all of them, but nonetheless, they remain among his most famous. When, when he was facing questioning by the Roman Catholic Church for some of his controversial writings, Luther's response was this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures and by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. And so friends, what I, I say this morning comes not from succumbing to the passion of the moment, nor from a desire to appear woke or seeking any other cultural stamp of approval, but rather from my love for my black brothers and sisters, my understanding of scripture, my understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, and most importantly, my understanding of the very heart of God. And friends, this morning my heart is heavy, really, really heavy. And I'm weary, and, and I know we all are, uh, for various reasons and to varying degrees. The past four months have been some of the most grueling many of us will ever experience. We're all worn out. But when I say that I'm weary and that my heart is heavy this morning, it's because we've been down this road 
of responding to racism many times before in this country, and specifically in white church settings. And I fear that we'll fall into the usual pattern, which goes something like this. We witness an outrageous injustice, an indefensible loss of another black life. And then there's a temporary outcry for justice that comes, including from some white churches, or at least from from a handful of white Christians who pause to actually listen and then say something. But then time passes, and as it always does, pretty soon we're back to our regularly scheduled programming, almost as if nothing had ever even happened. All while our brothers and sisters of color continue under the weight of systemic oppression and racism, not afforded the luxury or privilege of simply moving on, as those of us who are white are able to do. Now, I I recognize I probably just used a few words or phrases that made Some of your ears perk up a little bit, made your spidey senses tingle. Uh, So let me just unpack ever so briefly what I mean by them as kind of a frame of reference moving forward because I think our words are important. Please know that I don't choose my words carelessly. I am quite thoughtful about what I choose to say and not say. And so a first potential kind of spidey sense-inducing buzzword that needs to be named is white fragility. White fragility, it's, it's the observable pattern of behavior that when discussions of race or racism in America rise to the surface, there's a notable tendency for those of us who are white to get defensive, to lash out, to shut down, to deny, or to disengage altogether. I mean, in honest self-reflection, I, I can say that I have seen this pattern in myself quite often, and it's been easily observable in many interactions I've had as well. And I name this because for those of us who are white, we need to recognize when white fragility manifests itself in us, including if it happens this morning. Because until we can push through that, we'll never get anywhere. We need to step back, take a deep breath, when we sense our heartbeat quickening or our defenses rising. And and I need to be clear that when I or most people call out Systemic racism or white supremacy, it's not in an attempt to make white people the bad guys. It's simply to state the reality as it exists, that our society's systems were created by white people and for white people, and until we choose to partner with our brothers and sisters of color in addressing those oppressive systems and rebuilding them in a way that's equitable for all, we will never see justice and we'll never see peace. White fragility is a big part of why many black sisters and brothers point out that there's seemingly no acceptable way for them to make their voices heard. They can't kneel because it's disrespectful. They can't stand peacefully in the streets because it blocks traffic. They can't speak out on social media or leverage their influence as athletes. Instead, they should just shut up and dribble. They can't bring up race or else they're race baiting or perpetuating identity politics or creating division. Privilege and fragility does that. So when I say systemic racism, and I know that's another kind of one of those terms, I, I mean race, that racism as it's experienced in America today can't simply be whittled down to completely disconnected, isolated, one-off instances of racism or racist individuals. Rather, there are documented and observable patterns that have been baked into the core of America from its very inception and which continue on to this day alive and kicking. Yes, the forms of systemic racism morph. It starts with slavery, but then slavery ends and gets replaced by Jim Crow and segregation, 
which then ends and gets replaced by redlining, mass incarceration, and the vastly disproportionate impact of the war on drugs, to name just a few. Paul Robinson, who is a former Covenant church planting peer of both Dave and and myself, uh, now serves as the executive minister for the Covenant Church's Love, Mercy, Do Justice work. And he had this to say earlier this week regarding systemic racism. He said, those struggling with the notion of systemic racism do so in part because there's no identifiable centralized command center. America has mastered racism so that it is hardwired, part of our DNA and operating system, so that no centralized organizing is required, although it is present at times, like with the history of redlining. This reality is why so many can detach themselves from what's going on and dismiss it as a few bad actors. Friends, systemic racism is very real, as are its effects to this day, and we won't make the necessary progress until we can name that and learn to identify it. Another ear-perking term is privilege, and I think most of us are familiar with the phrase white privilege, but just to make sure we're on the same page. What I mean by white privilege, is that those of us who are white are almost always on the beneficial upside of our society's systems. The systems of our society will generally seem to work quite well to us because that's what they were created to do. Now, that doesn't mean that white people don't face challenges or injustices or abuses. Certainly, those happen to everyone. It's just that our whiteness is not going to be the reason for the challenges that we face in our society. Uh, Years ago, I was grabbing a beer with my dear friend BJ at Barley John's in New Brighton, which, by the way, if you're wondering, I highly recommend their Old Eight Porter and their Wild Brunette Ale. Fantastic. Um, But in the course of our conversation, uh, BJ, who who I should note is black, uh, almost offhandedly remarked to me that he'd been out shopping with his wife when he observed a white woman and her daughter kind of skipping through the parking lot into the store. And upon seeing this, BJ just thought aloud to himself and his wife, I wonder what it would feel like to be able to be so carefree. And it took me a moment to digest what he had just shared because I couldn't fathom that. Again, back to my own privilege, I rarely enter any public space wondering whether or not it's safe for me to just be myself. And my behavior or demeanor is rarely treated with suspicion because of the color of my skin. And yet BJ is never able to enter public spaces without an acute awareness of his blackness and how it impacts the way he has to navigate the world and how others might perceive him. And BJ's experience is not unique. It is most assuredly the norm for our black brothers and sisters. That, my friends, is privilege. And finally, I I realized that I used the phrase white supremacy a few moments ago. So let me just address that one. It, It has often been, in my opinion, rightly stated that racism is America's original sin. But if we want to put a finer point on the form that racism has taken in this country, we would have to label it as white supremacy. And I know white supremacy has become this incendiary phrase in our culture. I'm I'm fully aware of that. We tend to associate it with the KKK, the alt-right, other obviously and disgustingly racist white movements. And certainly those are expressions that white supremacy can take. But at its root, white supremacy is simply the belief that the white experience is normative. That it's the right way of seeing or ordering our world. 
And so while the extreme examples of white supremacy get all the press, the truth is that I and you, all of us who are white, we breathe the air and swim in the water of white supremacy all the time, most often without ever even realizing it. It's far more subtle, but it's no less destructive than the more overt and obvious manifestations that it can take. And the irony is that while we might be feeling a little uncomfortable addressing these things in church this morning, this is like 101 level stuff that our brothers and sisters in the faith who are black wouldn't bat an eye at or find controversial in the least. They can't help but be well-versed in the power and reality of things like white fragility and white privilege and white supremacy and of the forms that systemic racism takes. And I say all that to make what should be an obvious point, that if our brothers and sisters of color had the power to change our society to be more just on their own, it would have already happened centuries ago. The truth is that it hasn't happened on the whole because on the whole, those of us who are white have not cared enough to join our brothers and sisters of color in the work of racial justice for the long haul. As a follower of Jesus and a believer in the power of his gospel to tear down the walls that separate humanity, it is clear that this is an area where the gospel hasn't fully taken root in the white American church. And for this, we must repent. Okay. Deep breaths, everybody. We, we have waded through, I know, some contentious terminology. We've made it out alive. And I would just encourage you, if you found your heart racing a bit faster or your breathing getting shallower, to just pause, reflect on why that might be, pray for insight from the Spirit, ask if there was really anything in your inherent worth or identity in Christ that was just attacked or shamed. Because it wasn't. Our identity and worth as divine image bearers has no correlation with the worth that our country assigns to us because of our skin color. And those cultural systems that I've called into question have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. No doubt, having our blind spots exposed can always be hard to swallow initially, but I think we'd all agree we'd be far better off when we're aware of our blind spots so we can overcome them. Now, before I, I digressed into a definition of these terms, I shared that I hold a heaviness and a weariness today because I fear that we, both as the white American church in general, but specifically as a church body here at Resurrection, that we might stay on the sidelines or, or pay momentary lip service to this work. May it not be so. Uh, in the passage that Dave just read from Genesis chapter 4, we find the infamous account of Cain killing Abel, the first recorded account in Scripture of injustice and violence perpetrated from one human being against another. And after Abel's murder, God invites Cain into a conversation. He asks Cain where Abel is, to which Cain responds, am I my brother's keeper? And, and God's response may not be as well known as, as Cain's question there, but it should be. God responds to Cain, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Our brother's and sister's blood cries out from the ground to this day. And what is it crying? I can't breathe. I can't breathe. 
Friends, the blood of our black brothers and sisters has been crying out from the ground for more than 400 years. 400 years. And by and large, our response has been, am I my brother's keeper? Sometimes we've turned a deaf ear. We just continue to walk on with life and ministry as usual because we don't think it really impacts us. Other times we engage the work for a season and then assume that once a law has changed or a specific injustice has been addressed, then we've taken care of the problem. All too often, we found reasons and excuses to dismiss the cries altogether. Whether labeling our black brothers and sisters as embracing a victim mentality, portraying their pain as primarily self-inflicted, or assuming that in instances of injustice, there must have been some reason they deserved, even in part, what they got. Lord, have mercy. The blood of our brothers and sisters has been crying out to God and to us from the ground, and it's way beyond time for us to embrace our responsibility to be our brother's keeper. We are without excuse. We know what scripture says about justice and God's heart for the oppressed. We know what the voices of our black brothers and sisters have been saying from day one. It's simply a question at this point of whether or not we care enough to do something about it. And God help us if we don't. Actually, God help us because we haven't. We're one family, one human family, all of us created in the image of God, whether or not we profess faith in Christ, every life is of infinite worth. But specifically as Christians, we are part of one global church family, one body where every part is treated with utmost dignity and where when one part suffers, we are all called to suffer with it. Christian love is a co-suffering love or it's not Christian and so, fellow members of this church family that we call Resurrection Minneapolis, for the sake of both the gospel and for the sake of the lives of our brothers and sisters of color, we cannot stay on the sidelines on this one. This must become a central part of our work as a church. It cannot be ignored. It cannot remain on the fringes. In a conversation with a fellow member here at Res, they urged that we recognize this work as deserving of the same attention and concerted effort that we gave to our Elevate campaign. And I couldn't agree more. We rightly recognize that it was not okay that a certain population would never be able to worship with us because of a lack of access to this building. And so we said, no more. We did what had previously been deemed unachievable by others in the history of this church. We raised over a half million dollars to put an elevator in this building and that's happening now as we speak. And now, less than a year later, I believe we're at another similar and even more significant crossroads. This is a crucial moment in our church's history. There have been countless local and national tragedies of racial injustice over the century of this church's existence. And sadly, there will likely be more to come. And yet this one, both because of the way it's taken on global significance and because it's happened in our own backyard. This one feels different. And my sense is that if this isn't enough to get us in the game, I don't know what will be. I mean, even NASCAR's finally doing something this time around. Come on. I shared at the onset that I see this as the most significant sermon I've given here. And in part, it's because I am willing to stake my entire ministry and reputation on the importance of this work. 
on the value of black lives and pursuing justice and an end to systemic racism in this country. Because truthfully, if we're still not sure if it's the right time to take this work with the utmost seriousness, I don't think I have the patience to sit around and wait to see what will be the right time. I care too much for my brothers and sisters of color to sit back in silence or passivity. I've already done that enough in my life. No more. And I find it interesting. I've seen some churches who are finally engaging this work get labeled by some Christians as succumbing to cultural pressure. Almost as if said churches are doing it because it's the cool thing to do. Now, maybe they are. I don't know. But our black brothers and sisters have been crying out for centuries for justice. And their call for justice is as strong today as it ever has been. So think how loudly our silence would speak in this time. When even the culture seems closer than ever to actually responding to those cries, for the church to then silently watch or not meaningful engage would, would speak volumes. It would be beyond a slap in the face to our black brothers and sisters. Our silence or inaction would in essence be us responding to God, am I my brother's keeper? Now, on the flip side, resurrection family, imagine what fruit might be born in our church community and in our surrounding community if we took the same level of united effort and energy and put that towards getting an elevator in this building and then gave it to the work of seeing our brothers and sisters of color finally walk through their everyday lives breathing freely, moving freely in a way they've never been able to do in this country. I'm not saying we can turn this tide alone, and I'm certainly not trying to perpetuate a white savior mentality, but I am saying that the Spirit is already at work in this area. So imagine if we stopped resisting, even passively, and instead chose to actively keep in step with the Spirit on this one. Friends, if it's not clear already, I have a white, hot passion for this and a conviction that it's my responsibility as a pastor to be clear on this. At the same time, what I hope you hear from me is an invitation. I'm not trying to browbeat. I recognize every single one of us is coming into these conversations from a slightly different place with a different perspective. We don't all have to arrive at the same place all at once. And truthfully, because of where those of us who are white sit, because of our experience and vantage point, we'll never fully get it. We'll never truly understand the heavy burden placed on our black brothers and sisters in America. Which is why it's so vital that we hold a posture of listening and learning. Dave preached last week on Micah chapter 6, verse 8, and if ever there was a time for white Christians to really exercise humility in our faith, it's now. As we do this work, we must humble ourselves and follow the lead of our brothers and sisters of color. Let their voices lead the way. And let the Spirit speaking through them direct our steps. It's beyond time for that anyway. I mean, they can see the injustice in a way we never will. They can feel its effects in a way we never will. And as a result, they'll be able to see solutions that we never will. I mean, we have a hard time identifying and properly recognizing the problem to begin with. We surely aren't the ones to lead the charge in coming up with the right answers and solutions, but we must be a part of the solution. 
Dave and I have both publicly committed to you, our desire to move forward in this work alongside our black brothers and sisters in the church to follow their lead and heed their invitation and direction. Please hold us to that, please. And yet, as we also seek to better listen and understand, we have to be careful not to put the burden on our black brothers and sisters to do all of the work of educating us. I mean, the resources are already out there. In fact, many of them are being made available for free at a much lower cost right now, which is wonderful. But as Oshita Moore, who's a sister in ministry at Woodland Hills Church and Roots Covenant Church put it, she said, if you can Google information about finding a lake home, you can Google ways to help in the work of pursuing justice and becoming anti-racist. We need to do the work of seeking out information, hearing different perspectives, educating ourselves. That's a big part of how this work moves forward. Our brothers and sisters of color are already doing the work. We need to start doing our part. Now, I know that our American tendency in particular is to want to dive right into solutions. How do I fix it? What do we do? And some of you might be wanting me to give all of the specifics of what this work will look like and mean for us as a church. And the truth is, I don't know. I do know it means listening to our brothers and sisters of color and following their lead. That much is clear to me. But we don't have to have all of the specific answers or have everything figured out right now. We just need to accept the invitation to take the first step in front of us and then the next step and then the next step. I fully trust that if in humility we accept God's invitation on this one, listening to the voice of the Spirit speaking through our black brothers and sisters, God will continue to guide us into the appropriate next steps. Uh, and speaking of, I, I do want to just mention briefly the book study that I'll be leading on the book White Awake this summer, which starts tomorrow night, and it's not too late to sign up for that. But I'm doing that because when, when engaging this work of justice and dismantling systemic racism and active wor actively working to become anti-racist, those of us who are white have some important and necessary self-reflection we need to do so that we can be helpful contributors to this work. Because while I believe the majority of white folks to be well-intentioned, including I'm sure every white person here at Res, that doesn't mean we can't cause unintentional harm or unintentionally increase the burdens and pain if we don't do some internal work first. My friends, I hope you hear my heart on this. The invitation to this work is before all of us. Before me, before Dave, before each and every one of us at this church. If, if you've struggled with aspects of what I've said this morning or even disagree vehemently with what I've said, I, I just want you to know that I've got no desire to shame you into getting in line or something like that. My request of you would simply be to listen to what our black brothers and sisters are saying and genuinely seek to understand. Pick a book or a podcast or a documentary, one that was written or created by a black person, and please don't go looking for the outlier black voice that already aligns with what you believe. Don't go the Candace Owens route, and I, I, don't get me started there. Don't wait until a voice you already agree with speaks out on this. Please allow yourself to be uncomfortable. Anytime we try to understand the world from someone else's point of view, we'll be challenged. It comes with the territory. But we all must do our homework, so just listen.
truly listen, operate from a place of trust rather than suspicion. And for all of us, we need to be in prayer on this one. Deep, abiding prayer. Now, to be clear, I I don't believe we need to pray about whether or not we should engage in this work. I mean, there are certain things we just don't need to pray about. I don't need to pray about whether or not I should be faithful to my wife. God's pretty clear on that one. I don't need to pray about whether or not to extend love and grace to every person God's puts in my path. Scripture speaks with one voice on that. And I don't need to pray about whether or not God is calling me to walk alongside my brothers and sisters of color in seeking justice. Scripture couldn't be clearer on that one either. We're well beyond the point of discerning if we should do this. And so if we continue to ignore our brothers and sisters' blood crying out from the ground, we'll essentially be telling God, am I my brother's keeper? And so it is how we will engage this work, I believe, that is the task before us as a church. That is what we must discern in prayer. And as I've said already, I don't for one moment pretend to think that I've got most of the answers here. Again, I believe the answers will come as we listen to what our brothers and sisters of color in the faith have to say and follow their lead. And we must also pray for strength and courage. I can't tell you how weary and discouraged I've gotten in the past as I engage in the work of seeking justice and combating racism, primarily because of white friends who strongly question the importance of this work in the church or who get angry at me for calling us to this. It can almost make you want to give up. But we can't lose heart and give up. We can't let white feelings matter more to us than black lives. And so again, I share this with you as a pastor but also as a brother in Christ and a fellow member of this Resurrection Church family. I share all of this out of a deep love and concern for this church, not out of a desire to be right or push a political agenda. I believe this is a discipleship issue, and for many of us, myself firmly included, this is an area where we haven't completely surrendered to Christ. And so I invite you to walk this path together with me in the months and years to come. In closing, if I'm being honest, I share what I've shared because my children are watching. And I've given my life to modeling for them what it looks like to courageously follow Jesus. And I can't stay silent or not live it out here when we talk about it and seek to live it out at home. And I share what I've shared because our brothers and sisters of color are watching and waiting And I love them dearly. And I grieve the ways I've engaged this work half-heartedly. And I cannot in good conscience remain silent any longer. I must stand and march and kneel and protest and walk alongside them and follow their lead on this long road to justice. And ultimately, I share what I shared because Jesus, my King, is watching and waiting and already working here. And one day, I I don't want to hear him say to me, when I was crying out to you from the streets, I can't breathe. You ignored my cries. Instead, I want to hear, as I think we all do, well done, my good and faithful servant. Friends, the work before us and the time is now. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as you call us to the work of, of justice, the work of pursuing shalom, healing, reconciliation, wholeness in our world, when we see the ways it manifests itself so clearly in the lives of our brothers and sisters, God, you call us to this work, but we need your courage, we need your strength, we need humility, we need wisdom. God, as a church, direct us as one body into how you would have us engage this work. God, may we be a part of, of seeing our prayer that your kingdom would come and your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we be an answer to that prayer as a church. Jesus, we thank you for going with us and going before us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.